Well, last week, uh, I began a new series that we entitled, Are You Rapture Ready? Now, it's an involved series that I'm going to take you along, and, and I hope you can be here for all the, the sessions because it, it really is going to build on each other to one extent. But if not, and you miss one, still come back because we'll get you caught up. But the rapture itself is a theological term. You'll never find the term in the Bible we talked about last week. It's a theological term describing something that New Testament writers write about. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to believers in the city of Thessalonica. He actually sent them two letters. They're both in the New Testament. They're manuscripts. There's 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We saw last week that he's writing to these believers, and in part in this letter, uh, he's trying to address one of their concerns. They're concerned that people who have died that in, in the faith, have come to faith in Christ, have already died, or, or, or relatives and friends who have died, are going to miss the second coming of Christ. And so he's coming, writing to console them. And he describes this event, the event that we call the rapture. And he says this, he says, For the Lord himself, beginning in verse 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. Very dramatic event that is going to take place. Jesus talking about it in Luke 17, 24, said that it was going to be a sudden experience. No preparation. Jesus said, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In other words, it's just going to be a, a, a sudden, instantaneous rapture or catching up of people to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ will rise first, those who have been buried. Then those who are still alive when this event takes place, they'll be caught up to be with the Lord suddenly, like a flash of lightning, this is going to happen. Jesus goes on to say, the drama of this event. In Luke 17, verse 34 and 35, he says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. It is going to be a dramatic event like the world has never seen. Now, it is the next event in what we would call God's eschatological calendar. Now, what we're talking about is the last times, things leading up to the end of life as mankind knows it right now. And this is the next event that will begin a series of events that will radically change life forever and ever and ever. It's extremely important that we study this. And this may be the most important series that I share with you this whole year, and all of them are important. The question is, are you ready for this event? Are you ready for the rapture? Are you ready for what is to follow once this event happens? Now, the only way to be ready for the actual event, this sudden lightning flash, being caught up to be with the Lord, is to have trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. That's the only way to be ready for the event we saw last week, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else. That else is Jesus Christ. 
It says, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. And if you've never trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not rapture ready. Jesus said, one will be left, one will be taken. The difference will not be that one was a better person than the other person. The, The difference won't be that one was more religiously involved than the other person. The difference will be is what they had done with Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Those who trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, who put their confidence in him for eternal life, will be caught up. Those who have not or would not will be left behind. Now we ask the question, what happens after this event that we call the rapture? And see, that's why this is such an important event. Not only the event itself, not only will you be left or will you be taken, but everything that begins to happen after that. Now, we talked about the question, what happens to non-believers, those who are left behind? And we discovered last week that they're going to go into a period that we describe as the Great Tribulation period, a period of seven years of catastrophic events happening here on earth that can't even be imagined. Jesus said that that unlike anything that's ever happened in history, unlike anything that will ever happen again, in fact, he says, if God didn't intervene, everyone on planet Earth in these seven years would be killed, would lose their lives. Horrible time called the tribulation. But what happens to believers? What happens to those who have trusted Christ? After this rapture occurs. Well, understand this. As a believer, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are only ready for the rapture event. Now, what do I mean? That means if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're one of them that will be caught up to be with the Lord. Some got that confused last week, and I wanted to to really drive this home today. We are ready for the rapture event If we've trusted Christ as our Savior, every person who has trusted Christ as their Savior will be raptured up to be with the Lord. Those who have died, bodies will be resurrected first. Those who are still alive when this event happens, they'll be caught up to be with the Lord. It's all based on our relationship with Jesus Christ and trusting him as our Savior. Are we clear on that? Shake your heads yes, okay, or no. You will be caught up, because last week I said, oh my goodness, I'm a believer, but you mean I'm not going to, and other folks asked me even this morning, well, does that mean like my wife's a believer and she's going to be left here and I'm going to be gone? No, all believers will be gone. But here's the thing that you need to understand as a believer. Most of us here today, I'm sure, are believers. Being a believer, merely having trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, only makes you ready for the event. The rapture marks the beginning of the end. Now tell me, what is the end for believers? Huh? Someone said it. Eternity. Eternal life. That's the end. Forever and ever and ever. And this marks the beginning of that end for believers. Or in other words, this event marks the beginning of your entire eternal experience. Now what happens though, directly? Boom, raptured up, 
Tribulation periods going on on earth. What's happening to those who have gone up to be with the Lord? Well, I believe that's when this great event, as described in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and other places, occurs. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done well in the body, whether bad or good. Now, I showed you this, this timeline for the end times. Right now, we're living in what's called the church age. That's marked by the cross on the left side of the line. Then you have a, a, a line called the church age, and then you have a slash on the line. Then you have that little hook. That's the rapture that we're talking about. Well, that's the, the time we're living in now. That's the time we've been living in since Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. The rapture will mark the end of that time period of the church age. Now, seven-year period, tribulation. We talked about that for those who are left behind. For those of us who are raptured and resurrected, I believe that's the time that we will undergo this judgment, this judgment seat of Christ. There's going to be two judgments in the end times that the Bible describes. One is the great white throne judgment. That's in the book of Revelation. And that will be for those who have not trusted Christ as their Savior, their eternal judgment to determine their eternal destiny. But for believers, we know that because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that eternity is our home. We have the promise of eternal life. So what is happening to us then is we are at this judgment. Now, what is this judgment that we're going to be undergoing individually, one by one, during what I believe is this seven-year process? Well, Jack Kinsella, who is a Christian author, and he's the editor of a, of a circulation called the Omega Letter. The Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Remember, Jesus said, I am the, omega, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm the beginning and the end. Well, this is a letter that deals with end-time prophecies. He, he, he describes it very well. He, the, the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ. He says, the judgment seat of Christ is the place where all the deeds that individuals have done after they have become Christians are revealed and examined to determine whether they be good works or whether they be bad. Now, important qualifier that he goes on to say. Now, don't miss this. Let me emphasize, he goes on to say, that the word bad refers not to sin but to deeds that are worthless according to his, capitalized, Christ, God's purpose. Whether or not they were sin is irrelevant. Why? Because all sin is forgiven at the cross. But look what he says. Every deed has consequences. All right, so understand what we're saying here. At this judgment seat of Christ, all believers, those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, will now be judged for how they've lived their life, for what investments they've made in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not a punishment. It's not judged to be punished. It's a judgment to see what deeds, what actions, what things we have done that Christ can justifiably reward us for and what things really didn't count for eternity. That's what this is all about. Now, what will we be rewarded with? What's he going to give us? This is the reward thing. He's going to look at our life after believers, see how we've invested it, see what we've done. 
see the things that are worthwhile for his purpose and his kingdom that he can justifiably reward us with and things that we've done in our life that really didn't have anything to do with that and maybe it was all for ourselves or all for whatever cause and, and those things don't count. Now, what we're going to be rewarded with are crowns. Now, let me say this. This is a complex topic that we're dealing with. And I've got to kind of unveil it to you piece by piece so that you can understand it and, and to fit our time restraints. Unless you want to just come in and I can preach an hour and a half to you and I can give it all at one time. You want to do that? No, I know you don't. Nor would you probably be able to comprehend it all. So I'm going to take this in bits. So what I'm going to talk about right now this week is setting the stage for something that is very important. So don't check out. I'm going to describe these rewards to you today and give you an initial indication of how we earn them. Later on in the series, beginning next week, I'm going to tell you why it's so important that we pay attention to this. And then after that, I'm going to teach you how to be ready for this event. Okay, so do we understand the timeline of where we're going? Okay, nod, yes? Okay, all right, good. All right, so here we go. The Bible generally speaks about five different kinds of crowns that will be rewarded to believers. Now, I'm going to give those five to you today with a general description of each, but understand these are not in order of importance, they're just random order, okay? The first one that the Bible talks about is a crown of righteousness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul, again, is writing this letter, this second letter, to a preacher apprentice of his, a young preacher called Timothy, who is following Paul's work, and now he is actually involved in, in starting churches and pastoring churches. So he says this. He says, at the end of his life, Paul is at the end of his life now. He's in prison. Nero is the emperor of Rome. Paul is shortly to be beheaded for the cause of Christ. And, and so he, he's admitting. He says, Philip, or he says uh, Timothy, my days are short now. It's almost here that I, I'm not going to be around much longer. So he's encouraging him. He says, now, at the end of my life, he says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also, look what it says, to all who have longed for his appearing. This crown is given to all those who long for the Lord's appearing. It's all too often the case that men and women, through some medium or another, will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, the gospel is the good news about Christ, that Christ died on the cross for sins, and by merely trusting him as our personal Savior, our sins are forgiven, and we're given the promise of eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life, John three sixteen. That's the gospel, okay? Now, this crown is for people who, having trusted Christ, actually are involved in the work and in the mission of Christ. All too often what happens is people trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they think, that's it. Okay, I'm all right. I'm going to get to heaven, yay! And that's, yes, I yay with you. But 
there's so much more to prepare for. Now, all this is prefaced by Paul. This now, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. The verse before that, verse 6, or 7 rather, he says, I have fought the fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. In other words, he says, you know, I've invested my life. I've endured all these things. I've made Christ the center of my life, not a compartment in my life like so many people do today. Come to church on Sunday, check the box, say, okay, I'm all right. Well, it's good that you did, but that doesn't make you rapture ready. See, so he said, this crown is for all those who long for his appearing, who really want him to return, who really are conscious of that. Paul lived his whole life, and he's saying, Timothy, live your life in light of this reality, that Jesus is coming again, that Jesus is going to reward and give those. He says, now I've lived my life. For him now is in store for me a reward, a crown of righteousness. Remind you what Hebrews 11.6 says. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who what? Earnestly seek him. See, now, if we've just made Jesus a compartment of our life, if he's just kind of on the same level as many of the other compartments of our life, then we're probably not in the process of earning the crown of righteousness. See, he says, faith. Paul endured everything he endured. He changed his entire life. He gave up a very promising future so that he could be rewarded for Christ. He says, now, I'm at the end. My life is about over. But now is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me on that day. What day? The day of the judgment seat of Christ. He says, not only to me, but to everyone who has longed for his appearing. You know, first let's ask us the question today. Are we really longing for the return of Christ? reality is some of us even already in this series might be dreading the return of Christ. And if that is how we feel, then we need to make some changes. We need to do a check and balance in our life. A second crown is called the incorruptible crown. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 25, Paul again, now writing a letter to the believers in Corinth, declares this. He says, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it for a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Now, this is a crown given to those who have exhibited self-control, self-denial, and indiscipline in their life. Paul's a sports nut. You read his letters, and he's always talking about sports, wrestling and racing and all that kind of thing. I have no doubt that if Apostle Paul was living today, he'd want to come to one of our house after church and watch the playoff games today. 
He was a man's man, and he loved athletics because he refers to them a lot. In this case, he's referring to athletes competing to run in the Olympics. And he says, what happens is they go into strict training. In other words, they deny themselves. And if you listen to some of the stories, we, we go into the Winter Olympics here in just in a couple of weeks, of these athletes and the self-denial that they go through as far as their diet and, and their exercise regimen and their practice schedule and all that. I mean, they basically give up everything else in life and dedicate themselves to training for that event they are going to compete in. See, that's what Paul is saying here. He said, now, all those worldly athletes who work so hard and give up so much to win a prize, and in that day, all it was was an olive leaf kind of crown. It just got some olive leaves together and wove them together, and that was it. It was a laurel wreath that they wore on their head. He said, one that doesn't last. As we know, plants die, and that thing's going to wither, and it's not going to have anything. They didn't get gold medals and things like today. That's what they got. But they would kill themselves to get that, to achieve that. And he's saying, now, believers who go into strict training, believers who will practice self-denial. You know, the truth of the matter is, all of us, are drawn to things that we know we shouldn't do, right? We all have, have, have things that, that, that we struggle with. They're different for all of us, but all of us have those areas. And sometimes we, we, we just want to indulge ourselves. And sometimes we get in the habit of a lifestyle of indulgement. And we just indulge and indulge and indulge, and, and we are forgetting that every day, in our life as a believer is a day of preparation, is a day of opportunity for us. And so he says there's this crown, the incorruptible crown, that on the day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, that Christ is going to reward to those who have brought an element of self-discipline into their life. Who although they want to do this and they want to make this choice, they don't in light of eternal reward. Those who, who, who really have a part of their life, a style that they really dearly love, but the Holy Spirit convicts them about and says, this is an area you need to change. And instead of embracing that, this crown is for those who will say, well, man, I love that. But I love Christ more. I love his appearing more. I long for his appearing more. And all of that is observed. Our self-denial of time, our self-denial of some of our personal resources, our self-denial of, of, of things that we would like to do or behaviors we would like to participate in. But we don't for the cause of Christ. Then there's the crown of life the Bible talks about. James, the half-brother of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 12, in his New Testament manuscript, he writes this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, this crown is given to those who patiently endure through trials, and we might even throw the word temptations in there. 
You know, some of you right now are going through some difficult times in your life. Maybe they're relational times. Maybe they're physical times. Maybe they're financial times. Maybe they're vocational challenges. You know, actually, every time one of those situations presents themselves, what you actually have is a fantastic opportunity to earn for yourself eternal rewards. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we pray, oh, God, you know, send me hard times because I want the crown of life. But hard times are going to come. They're going to come to all of us. How many have already had hard times in your life? Huh? Raise your hand. Yeah, I don't see any hands that, that aren't raised. Every one of us are. It's how we respond in those times that will be rewarded. See, if we respond faithless and if we respond with just moaning and groaning and we respond, oh God, where are you all the time? Now that's a natural thing and all of us have done it at one time or another. But if that becomes our, our lifestyle during and throughout the crisis that we're in, then how can Jesus justifiably reward us for that response? But when we respond like so many of you have, I marvel at you who are going through some really hard times and say, I, I don't know, I don't understand it. and Man, it really hurts, Pastor. But you know what? I know God's in control. I know God's on his throne. I know God will never forsake me. He'll never lead me. And my eyes are on him and my praise is to him and glory to God. And somehow we're going to make it through this together. Wow. See, we, we, we just think that, that we're, we're tapping into faith and, and others might even say who are unbelievers say, ah, you're just using a crutch, but we know that's not true. But you know what we don't realize is that we are storing up treasure in heaven with that faithful response. We are eligible for the crown of life. Yet another crown is the crown of rejoicing. Back to 1 Thessalonians, this first manuscript of Paul to the believers at Thessalonica. The same one that talks about in chapter 4, this whole rapture experience. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes this. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Paul says, you know, why aren't we doing this? Paul's talking about himself and the other disciples and other apostles and those who, are, who have given up their life and experiencing self-denial and sacrifice and in their day, even torture and misuse and abuse and all that kind of thing. And they say, why are we doing this? He says, well, so that we can rejoice in the crown of glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he answers the question, why are we doing it? He says, is it not you? Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to people he has brought to faith in Jesus Christ. See, this crown is given to soul winners. This crown is given to people who have had a part in helping someone else come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the one, he, Paul says, what we're going to glory before the Lord in is, is, is not, not the things that we've done. Our glory is going to be you standing in heaven, having trusted Jesus Christ through our work, through our ministry, through our efforts. He says, and that is going to bring great rejoicing. 
See, that's the soul winner's crown. Listen, there is nothing that we do in this life after becoming a believer in Jesus Christ that is more important to Jesus, that is more enthusiastically received by Jesus than having a part in bringing somebody else to faith in him. Remember, Acts tells us that the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet, the reason God has not yet sent him back to earth, is because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He keeps giving mankind, people that you know in your family and in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in your schools, he keeps giving them one more day, one more chance to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. See, it's in mercy that God hasn't sent Jesus back in these last 2,000 years. And whenever we have a part in helping someone to find their way to the cross of Jesus Christ, to find their way to faith in him, we are making ourselves eligible to receive the crown of glory. The final crown is this crown of glory. The other was, I'm sorry, the crown of rejoicing. The crown of glory. In 1 Peter, this is a New Testament manuscript and a letter written by Peter, one of the original 12 disciples. In chapter 5, verse 2-4, this is a special one. It says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This crown is especially for leaders who were examples to their flock, to their congregation, to their church family. Now, it would seem most obviously that it is especially written to pastors, people like myself. But I, I think it goes beyond that. And I, I think it goes to all leaders in the church. I think it goes to deacons. And I think it goes to, to elders. And I think it go, goes to ministry leaders. Whether it be the children's ministry or Awana ministry or, or everything. I, I think all those who accept positions of leadership in the flock make themselves eligible by how they interact with the flock. We're intended to interact with you as shepherds who lead you to places God wants you to go. And we're not to do that for the love of money. And we're not to do that to lord it over and to have some kind of, a, of a, a position of authority and power and control over people. That's not it. He said, not because we have to, there's nothing else that we can do, but because we are willing. See, he says, by your example. Leadership by example, you make yourself eligible for the crown of glory. Now, that, that, that's a crown I hope to have one day. 
And I hope you'll help me to have that crown. And, and I know that all of our pastors feel that way. And, and I know our elders in their hearts, and they feel that way. And our deacons, and our ministry leaders. Now, the rapture marks the beginning of all this happening. And the first thing that will happen is the judgment seat of Christ where every one of us who are believers, you're a believer here today, this is for you. This is the first thing I believe you will experience after that event. Now, if you've already died, it's still going to be the first thing you experience with your resurrected body. If you are here and alive, as I believe we could be, when this event actually happens, it's the first thing that happens after we're caught up to be with the Lord. But whatever our state at the actual event, it is the beginning of our eternal experience. Now write this down if you're taking notes. Every believer's eternal experience is not going to be the same. Let me say it again. Every believer's eternal experience is not going to be the same. See, we've perpetrated this myth that eternal life is floating on a cloud playing a harp with wings on our back. That's not eternal life. And can I get an amen? Aren't you glad it's not? Can you imagine living forever and ever and ever floating on a cloud playing a harp, flapping your wings? Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't want to go to hell, but send me someplace else. Now, if you really want to know everything that, that I believe about heaven, I did a series about that, and I'm not going to repeat the series, but it's available. It's called Heaven Better Than Hell, I guess. But I want you to understand and I want you to understand why what we're going to talk about, what we're talking about this series, is so vitally important to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Because every believer, eternal experience is not going to be the same. What's that judgment? Jesus, again, talking the same thing, Revelation chapter 22. Verse 12, this is Jesus' words. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. How soon? I don't know. Soon in their, their timetable, maybe a long time in ours. But he said, my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone, read it with me, according to what he has done. Read it again. According to. Now, what's he going to give? Eternal life? No. He's already given eternal life. That's his gift. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's God's gift to us. That's his love gift. That's, he can't, he's not rewarding us for what he gave us. He says, I'm bringing my reward with me, and I'm going to reward everyone according to what they have done well in the body. And again, what is that? That's according to what we have done that he can justifiably declare worthwhile in the eternal kingdom, in the eternal consideration. In Revelation 3, 
one, or three eleven. In the very beginning of the book of Revelation, we always focus on the end of it. But it starts out with a warning to seven established churches of that day. And it warns them about how they're falling away from making themselves worthy of eternal rewards. Now, this church in verse 11 is the church of Philadelphia. And this is one of the only churches of those seven that he actually commends. And after commending them, because they're, they're holding the line and they're standing for truth and, and, and they're doing it right. And he says to them, he says, he says, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He said, don't lose it. Don't blow it. Don't stop doing what you're doing. Don't give up. Don't get lazy. Don't get apathetic. And so you lose your crown. It means because, and get into things that, that are, are, are worthless for eternal purposes. Paul, writing now to the believers in Ephesus, in the New Testament manuscript that we call Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, says this, Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, what's he saying? He's just saying, oh, the world is corrupt and all that. Yeah, we know the world's corrupt. We don't have to go far to see that, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, because the days, because the culture, because society, because of our vocations and, and our leisure desires and all that. All of that is competing in this lifetime with our eternal preparations. And all of those things, although enjoyable, and although they are justified and we're allowed to do those things, but we get it so far out of balance to where our life is centered around all that other stuff and we're not engaged in things that are worthwhile for the cause of Christ. And so when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, I'll say, well, you know, I, I was a faithful member of the Kiwanis. Well, that was nice, but what did you do in the Kiwanis for the cause of Christ? Well, you know, I, I was faithful in this, and I was a member of this, and I, oh, okay, all right. And, and, and it's not going to be, you know, this kind of a thing, Jesus looking down, okay. He's going to be, come on, give me something, give me something, give me something. Come on, give me something that I can reward you for. Come on, I want to reward you. I want to lavish. Look at what I've got here. I've got all these crowns. I want you to have them all. Come on, give me something. Come on, help me here. But he's going to be just. It says, therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, let me ask you. Are you rapture ready? Now, if you're a believer, you're ready for the event. If it happens right now and the trumpet sounds, the Lord catches the dead and then the live in Christ, we're, we're, you know, rightfully you're going, you'll be gone, you won't be one left behind. But now... What I'm trying to do is stimulate all of our thinking, my thinking, your thinking. But what happens after that? Am I ready? The rapture just starts all the dominoes falling. What happens with the dominoes in my life? What do he say? Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the Lord's will. Do you understand what the Lord's will is? Do you understand what your eternal experience is really going to be? Do you really get it that every believer's eternal experience is not going to be the same? What's yours going to be like? Well, if you want help on that, come back next week. And we'll start helping you chart that course. We'll start helping you to live that life that will get you ready to stand before Jesus Christ and receive your rewards. Now, don't get lost in the symbolism of the crowns and that because there is a practical purpose to it all. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's bow our heads. Maybe you're here today, though, and you're not ready for the event, the rapture. You have a concern that if that event would happen that we talked about, the trumpet of God's sound and, and the dead in Christ rise and those who are believers then will be caught up to be with him in the, in the sky. One will be left in bed. One will be taken. If you're concerned, you're going to be the one left in bed. Then you probably have never trusted Christ as your Savior. But this morning, God wants to give you that opportunity. It's a gift. That's a gift. Nothing you earn. Nothing you can work for. It's just a gift. He, he, he gives it to you because he loves you as his prized creation mankind. It's the only way to be ready. There's no other way. Acts 4 said, there's no other name given to men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus. Jesus said it himself in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How about you? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Every head's bowed, no one's looking around. But you're here this morning, and you might say, Pete, I, I, I've never done that. I've never trusted Christ as my Savior. But right now, I sense that the Spirit of God is calling me to do exactly that. And I want to trust Him today. Would you just slip your hand up? No one looking around. I won't embarrass you, I promise you. Father, again, from the testimony here this morning, all of us have trusted Christ. That means that we are ready for the event. We are ready for the rapture event. When that happens, if it happens in our lifetime, we're ready. If it happens uh, after our death, then we're ready, and we'll have that resurrected body. But, Father, what we need to focus on now, and for our own eternal welfare... What happens after that? What is our eternal experience going to look like? How do these rewards that, that we talked about today impact that future? Lord, I pray that every believer here will take time to slow down a little bit from his or her busy, hectic schedule and make this a priority in their life, this study this time so that they make themselves eligible for these amazing rewards and the purpose of the rewards that is yet to be revealed. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.